I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, uh, one of your co-hosts. I'm Matt Bernico, your other co-host, and just one of a ragtag group of bank robbers ready to <laughs> uh, set the world right with my big heist I'm doing with my friends. That's right, folks. Uh, a new episodes of Money Heist came out this week, and I'm really excited <laughs> about it. Yeah, so many hours. Five hours, exactly, I think, uh, of content. And there's going to be five more in December. Uh, so it's just enough of a cliffhanger at the end to make you feel like you're really watching the show. I appreciate that. Yeah, for uh, people who don't listen to the our Behind the Paywall podcast, um, we are big fans of the show Money Heist, uh, which is a great, mostly anti-capitalist show about bank robbers, and it does rule. So um, get out there and, and watch this one with us. I'm sure we'll talk about it probably more times than we should in this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, it is very good, and you'll learn Spanish as you go, so that helps. See, uh, <laughs> This time around, though, we are not talking about Money Heist or La Casa de Papel, uh, <laughs> as they say in Spain. Instead, we are talking about uh, climate change still. We can't stop thinking about it. And uh, there have been some good articles and things that Matt and I have just been reading and talking about back and forth. So we thought, why don't we just talk about it in front of a microphone and see what happens? Um, just like uh, a few weeks ago, we said that we were just going to start and see what where we get by the end of the conversation. I think we're doing that this time around as well. But we do have some ideas about it. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the IPCC report that was spelling out the bad news of climate change and impending disaster. And we were kind of doomers about it. It was a it was a bummer of an episode. Uh, we felt bummed at the end of it. And this week, we are coming back to climate change and some of the apocalyptic consequences to think a little bit more critically about the terms uh, that surround that problem and also how we can think through I don't know, maybe possible solutions, but more accurately, uh, ways of thinking about solutions. <laughs> I want to qualify it. Uh, yeah, you need to think you need to know how to think yeah. about possible solutions before you can even come with one with one solution. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to move us back so far <laughs> in the steps of this process. Uh, so we don't have any big solutions to the climate, uh, but. Maybe if we can think about the ways that capitalism is tied into climate crisis, we can think a little more clearly about how to approach uh, thinking about politics in the midst of climate change. And, you know, it's uh, we've got it all. We've read a monthly review article that helped us put our brain together. Uh, I've been rereading Pope Francis's Laudato Si. So, uh, yeah, surprise, surprise. There's actually some very good stuff in there. 
Um, so we'll get to all that. Uh, but Matt, where should we start? What's the point of entry for this big conversation? It's hard to figure out exactly where to start because climate change is such a big problem. And figuring out, you know, exactly where the problem lies is is part of thinking about the problem. <laughs> this is this is the backpedaling. This is uh, the moving the moving uh, five steps back to even take a look at like what the actual issue is that we, we were talking about. Um, you know, uh, we we think we know what the problem is that it's uh, it's anthropogenic climate change. It's people um, releasing carbon into the air. Uh, into the, I don't even know the air, the sky, <laughs> up up in the big blue that people that people love so much. We're putting too much carbon yeah, up there. Yeah, the big right? blues turn into Earth. the big brown, and you don't want that. <laughs> that's right, and uh, that makes the the Earth heat up. Right, that's all. That's all there. Um, but uh, people think, people rarely think very critically about the unequal distribution of blame and consumption patterns for the emissions of carbon. Um, that is maybe the the point of entry to this to this uh, episode, this discussion that we're gonna have here. Like liberalism generally assumes that global capitalism's promise of freedom is to bring everyone up to the developmental habits of countries like the United States and Canada, you know, like North America. But scientists say that if everyone in the world consumed like we do, um, we would need several Earths to sustain it. So that's maybe the point of entry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we think the problem is just um, people doing things to the Earth. And then that creates climate change, which is true, but it's not just like a random group of people doing things to the earth. It's a real specific organization of people that are doing things to the earth that then cause the problems of climate change. Like what we're talking about is capitalism, right? I mean, like that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that like maybe the place to start is analyzing the terms of the problem a little bit more clearly so that we can kind of like find, I mean, for... Well, uh, this is maybe a bad way to put it, but you can find like the right people to blame for the problem. Um, and uh, that uh, put, putting it that way, I guess, makes me think of this thing that one of my, I don't know, favorite folk musicians, Utah Phillips, has said um, many times. Um, Utah Phillips has this thing uh, that he says that um, about, about patterns of blame um, and how that adds actually really important to understanding society and the way that it works. Uh, so Utah Phillips has this thing where he says, uh, all of us assign blame in our own best interest. And if we assign blame in our own best interest, that means that the blame is relative. <laughs> and if blame is relative, then one of the important functions of society becomes who controls the blame patterns. And for Utah Phillips, he was always uh, he was always cognizant of the ways that, um, you know, um, when push came to shove, it was really the the people at the very bottom of the uh, the social pyramid, the people like uh the, the people who are scamming welfare or something at the very bottom, trying to get a little bit of something for nothing. But Utah Phillips always reminds us that actually, if you flip it and you think, well, you know, you need to think about the people who are getting a lot of a lot of something for nothing, <laughs> the billionaires and trillionaires at the top. Um, and, and that's like, you know, why why do we assign blame downward rather than upward? Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a really important thing to consider as we are thinking about anthropogenic climate change or climate disaster or whatever words we want to use, I guess. But, um, you know, we think that the the problem is is with everybody doing things. But actually, you know, it's with the ways that capitalism has arranged certain groups of people to consume, you know, massive amounts of everything that create carbon and, and do all kinds of other things. So I think that might be the the place to start is kind of understanding that pattern of blame and coming to under, like uh, d- do a deeper analysis, a more critical analysis that actually finds the people and systems that uh, you ought to really hold accountable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that is a good place to start. And maybe we can even take a minute and talk through how people have tried to name that phenomenon that you're talking about, you know, people changing the planet. Uh, The big word is Anthropocene. Uh, That is a fancy word. If you've never heard it before, congratulations. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You've never been to grad school, I guess. Lucky for you. Uh, Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of the, the prefix is Anthropos, right? Humanity. And the assumption is just like we had other, uh, sort of geological periods in the earth's history that are defined by a number of different phenomena. Uh, I forget what they are. I don't know. Heliocene is one of them. I think, <laughs> you know, the, the Holocene is like the recent The Holocene. That's what I'm thinking. Um, different ways in which the earth changes uh, or it sort of takes different shapes depending on big variables. And uh, the big revolutionary moment is that now humans are kind of in the driver's seat of those changes, that humans are have become the primary uh, cause of changes on the planet and changes that are happening, happening very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to pause there? We can unpack that a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. I think that's actually a really big part of the the situation. Like, again, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a geologist. So I'm really doing a little bit of talking on my butt here. But I, <laughs> I feel like there there's something really important to that, right? Like, um, when it comes to naming previous geological epochs, um, you know, we talk about, um, uh, yeah, like, like what rocks are doing, right? right? Like that's it. like what's in the fossil record of a particular time or something. And with the Anthropocene, it's, it's when humans and human action is kind of um, is, is, is influencing geological time. And I think that is the part that is like, I mean, a little bit scary if you think about it, <laughs> where people are, you know, I mean like the, um, the industrial revolution, the, um, the advent of like nuclear energy and like the proliferation of plastic everywhere, right? These are the um, the traces of anthropogenic change and effect on the earth that are being like left behind. That's like you know, <laughs> once uh, once eventually some kind of big volcano comes and kills us and covers over all of our cities, um, future aliens will be looking underneath it all and be, they'll find all this plastic and they'll be like, ah, the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. that was them, right? Um, but that's like the that's the perspective we're talking about. But um, but like we were saying, though, the the Anthropocene is not like um, it's not symmetric in its um, in its causes or something. It's not like equally, uh, you know, not every single person is equally uh, at blame for it, I suppose. Yeah, right. Or like not every person on the planet is affecting the climate to the same degree or with the same amount of power or um, with the same amount of agency, for instance. And that's really important, too. I should pause here to say, so, okay, the basic term is the Anthropocene. That's kind of the the common term that people use to describe just that generic fact that human beings are changing the planet. But as you can guess, there are all kinds of other terms that have been suggested as ways of complicating it and maybe assigning blame in different ways. And we can talk through them more, uh, at least one of them in a minute, kind of relying on that monthly review article that will sort of uh, (laughs) introduce everybody to whether they like it or not, surely. But uh, people have sort of tried to locate the precise moment at which humans become the drivers of that change. And, you know, uh, it is tied, if you're not an anti-capitalist still, it is usually tied to the Industrial Revolution. Not always. Some people locate it elsewhere, but 
Uh, it's pretty clear that that's a turning point in human history in terms of our relationship to the environment. Uh, other people will locate it a little bit further back. Uh, like there are some um, people who do work on race who talk about the plantation no scene or something like that, right? That uh, there's something about the sort of anti-blackness that is constitutive of capitalism that also feeds into the way that we treat the planet. Um, some people talk about the Cthulhu scene. <laughs> there's a lot of wild stuff going on there. But uh, I think what all these different terms are trying to get at is that Anthropocene as a kind of neutral term can act actually obscure those power differentials and power relations. And it's important to parse out who's really in the driver's seat of climate change. Yeah, it it really is. Um, man, it's actually cool that you bring up the Cthulhu scene because that is, uh, I think, another helpful idea um, in this vein of thinking. I don't want to divert our, our conversation too much, but... That's a phrase uh, or a, a term coined by Donna Haraway, who is like one of these very fascinating um, Marxist feminists, but like fall into this other category of kind of like post-humanist thinkers. Um, anyways, it has a lot to do with like the the tentacular and the ways that uh, human and non-human are really interconnected in this world. But that's a whole other story, man. Just maybe maybe all I'm trying to say here is it's a good book recommendation or something. <laughs> it's yeah. a it's a wild book. There's a, a great video if we're talking about it too. Anyways. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the Anthropocene a little bit more and um, maybe this other suggestion from the monthly review, the Capitalocene or the Capitolinian. Not great words here, folks. Um, these people are geologists. They're social scientists. They're not they're not marketers. <laughs> they're not doing a good job coming up with great with great messaging and branding, but it's fine. We'll roll with it. Um, so in the most recent um, issue of the monthly review, a, um, a magazine that we like to talk about um, endlessly, the the uh, the cover story uh, by John Bellamy Foster is called the Capitolinian, and it's kind of tackling this problem that we're uh, we're dealing with right now about the um, yeah the different powers and the different uh, scales of influence that different people and systems might have on the environment. And uh, yeah, let's just take a look at some of the things in this essay that might be helpful to kind of get a handle. I'm thinking on like the grand problem of humans <laughs> impacting the environment because mm -hmm. it is a big one. Um, so this is this is one uh, place to start thinking with that essay. Um, so John Bellamy Foster, he writes this. In this view, the prefix anthro in, in the word Anthropocene is often interpreted as simply having a human biological dimension while lacking a socioeconomic and a cultural one. As one post-humanist critic has charged, not only the notion of the Anthropocene, but even the phrase anthropogenic climate change is a special brand of blaming the victims of exploitation, violence and poverty. Um, okay, so I think that's actually a really helpful point as a just a jumping off point that um, anthropogenic is a word that is um, maybe in, in some. It, OK, it's referring to the ways that humans, you know, how climate change starts with human like anthropogenic, right? The genesis of, of climate change is with humans. And that's true. But um, what John Billy Foster is saying here is really important because it might end up kind of being victim blamey. Um, that the people who are most exploited um, by by violence, uh, by the violence of capitalism, um, it might be unfair to blame them for all of the climate change. Right. Why would you uh, why would you um, blame? I don't know, like workers in a factory or whatever, when it's, you know, they're being coerced into doing those things. So you have to kind of think about it in, in maybe a slightly different register. Yeah, that's right. And 
I mean, things get even more and more complicated when we scale up to the level of global capitalism and how this all feeds into, you know, workers in the global south, for instance. But I think uh, just to sort of stick with your example of workers at a factory, right? Like, um, you know, you, you kind of get this rhetoric sometimes around uh, like dirty industries, right? Like coal mining. That's the one I always think about. Um, you know, coal is very bad. Like we shouldn't be burning it. Uh, nevertheless, there are like entire towns that are built around the premise of uh, people working in coal mines, right? And uh, like like successive generations of families uh, who have built their lives as uh, sort of related to that industry. Um, you know, a bunch of them have been on strike in Alabama, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, it's a, a big deal. Um, and the trouble is nobody should be burning coal, But nevertheless, these are proletarianized workers, right? People who have to sell their labor in order to survive because our society doesn't know what else to do with human beings in an intentional way other than to compel them to work in whatever sort of job they can possibly find. Uh, Otherwise, you know, you'll go hungry or not be able to pay your rent or or whatever. And I think that's really significant, too, that, of course, coal mining uh, contributes to climate change. And coal miners, as a result of pulling coal out of the earth to be burned, uh, they, too, contribute to climate change. Um, But uh, they do so because we have a global capitalist system that compels them to work and also uh, does not have any interest in finding other alternatives that may not be as profitable as something like coal mining. So it's important to recognize that uh, yes. Are they human beings contributing to climate change? Yes. But like not in the same way that, you know, like yeah. people who don't make decisions about energy in, at the political level are are contributing to climate change. Yeah, that's a really good example. Something else that came to mind for me when we were kind of getting through this was um, this is like a really niche example that kind of, um, I don't know, uh, pulls the problem out a bit more. But um I don't know. I saw a documentary about it once. So I guess I, I have I have grounds to talk <laughs> about it. Um, in 1984, there is this uh, uh, this thing in Bhopal, India, called the Bhopal disaster. Um, th- this chemical plant that was there that's owned by Eaton Carbide, which is now owned by a company called Dow Chemical, which is something to think about that still exists in the United States. It's a real company that doesn't really give a shit about this. Anyways, all that to say, the Bhopal disaster was um, this like this gas leak um, in 1984. That ended up like uh, spreading pesticides to all of these workers who worked at this particular plant in, in Bhopal, India. And it is like one of the, I don't know, like the worst industrial disasters, I think, probably ever. Um, something like, man, I'm trying to think of the exact number, F- like 500,000 um, people were like exposed to these pesticides and it leached into like the groundwater and has all kinds of like, um, you know, compounding environmental effects on top of that. And, you know, even today, people in Bhopal still kind of like deal with the fallout and and, um, and like birth defect and all kinds of things like that. And it's like, um, it's such a wild thing because it's held up as an industrial disaster that had huge ramifications for like the, for like local ecology, right? But it's not like those people can be held <laughs> responsible necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's this company that put them in this position where they're going to work in some place that isn't safe. Um, doing something that is like, I don't know, um, I guess in some ways maybe necessary for like, I don't know, farming or, or something, but still it's like, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, you can't blame the wrong people, I guess, in, in these types of situations. And I think that's a really important 
point when we're talking about anthropogenic climate change because it's 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 anthropogenic but like you have to recognize that there is a particular system and i uh, you know logic and ideology behind the system that is like creating the problem and it's not necessarily workers <laughs> it's not right. uh, it's not people who are like putting their lives on the line to make uh very little money uh it's not their fault necessarily yeah um so, you know, the spoiler here is, of course, the problem is capitalism. It's always capitalism, <laughs> so on and so forth. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, before we do, though, I also think it's important to take a minute to say, yes, global capitalism is the the primary kind of driver of this, but it will not, it will, we'll find out. It is not as so simple as to say, well, and communism is just kind of the answer, right? Because the, the big wrinkle in blaming only capitalism is that uh, countries that have become communist also rapidly industrialized and uh, and are still industrializing in ways yeah. that are not sustainable and uh, not good for the environment. And that sort of, I think, gives a little bit of credence to the idea of calling it the Anthropocene, for example, or at least kind of doing the Capitalocene with sort of an asterisk on it <laughs> or saying, uh, you know, I guess you, you could sort of, if you really wanted to be like pedantic about it, you could say, well, perhaps uh, communist countries wouldn't need to industrialize so rapidly if they weren't uh, competing with um, capitalist nations around the world. And of course, you'd you'd be right. <laughs> but still, uh, you know, th it, uh, there there are kind of independent industrial logics embedded in uh, Marxism in particular and communism, too, that uh, sort of compel, I think, people who are in a communist or socialist tradition to spend a lot of time reflecting critically on how those uh, situations have also contributed to bad ways of human beings, uh, not, you know, human beings changing the environment in really bad ways. Yeah. It's a really good note um, for sure that uh, there's, there's more to the story than just capitalism, but um, I don't know. Capitalism is also pretty egregious. It's the main one. I think no it's matter the, what, it's, it's the main the bad one. one. That's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's something to be said, though, that there's like a larger story here about the ways that humans comport themselves towards nature, towards non-human right. creatures or whatever. I think that's a really important discussion. Just the same um, man. Um, cool. Well, here's another quote to maybe get us back on track uh, in targeting capitalism specifically. <laughs> <laughs> so in the monthly review, again, uh, John Bellamy Foster writes this. The epicenter for such global environmental disruptions has been the United States as the hegemonic power of the capitalist world economy, dominating and characterizing this entire period. In our analysis, the economic and social system of the United States thus epitomizes the Capitolinian, as no other nation has played a bigger historical role in the promotion of a poverty of power represented by fossil capital. So this is this is getting to kind of the crux of the argument here that... Uh, Sure, uh, anthropogenic climate change is a descriptive term, but um, you can't just think that like everyone is sort of equally responsible or like has equal sort of pull over fixing the problem. Even that uh, that there is uh, you know specific people who are um, who are responsible. Uh, again, another Utah Phillipsism that uh, the people the people destroying our planet do have names and addresses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, um, let me let me read a little bit more on here about the Capitolinian, and then we can have a different kind of conversation about it. So uh, this is um, kind of the uh, in the month review article. This is kind of setting the table more to talk about this this thing called the Capitolinian. So at the start of what we call the Capitolinian, 
global monopoly capital rooted within the United States entered a period of massive expansion fueled by the rebuilding of Europe and Japan, the petrochemical revolution, the growth of the automobile complex, suburbanization, the creation of new household commodities, militarization and military technologies, the sales effort and the growth of international trade, with the endless quest for profit spurring the accumulation of capital production and the material throughputs to support the economic systems operations have greatly expanded, placing more demands on ecosystems and generating more pollution. Um, I include this like second chunk here. It is a bit long winded, but it is important because it's just like it's kind of giving you a bullet list of all of the things that capitalism is explicitly doing that kind of plays up this um, its its responsibility for uh, for climate crisis. Uh, it, you know, if, if you want to know if it's anthropogenic climate change, then these are the anthropogenics that you need to be looking at right here. Mm hmm. Yeah, the particular anthropogenics, it's important to put it that way, for sure. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, so all that to say, I guess, just to kind of tie this up, uh, this little bit of the conversation, maybe, like, it's true. Human beings are changing the environment, and uh, it is mostly capitalism's fault. Um, I mean, like, overwhelmingly capitalism's fault. <laughs> I think <laughs> we can say that pretty safely. And we can also, I think, say that whatever faults may exist within communism uh, and they are real and so on with respect to ecology uh, and socialism uh, as well. Uh, the fact of the matter is capitalism is uh, a system that internal to itself can't really solve this problem, that it's only really going to be able to exacerbate it. And that should compel us to... Uh, seek some kind of other alternative. Um, maybe uh, before we get to what that alternative is, though, it might be good to keep drilling down into how capitalists think about uh, the world around them or sort of how they miss this, I think. Um, you know, like I always think of, you mentioned earlier, Matt, like liberalism kind of has this dream of raising everybody around the world up to the living standards of people in, in the US or Canada or, or Europe or whatever. Um, and that is like literally impossible, right? There, there's a hard ecological limit to that dream. Um, like everyone on the world cannot have a cell phone. Uh, the world like can't sustain 7 billion cell phones at one time. Um, so, you know, liberalism applies this kind of like humanitarian dream of industrial development and consumption uh, that you find in North America and, and Europe to other countries. And this is a problem in liberal solutions to cutting carbon emissions because it puts people in so-called developing countries on the hook for climate change, right? It's like, well, uh, we have to be able to get whoever it might be, Bolivia or something, up to our standards of consumption, but also they have to do it in a way that is like clean and, you know, not like the way that we did it and so on because of climate change. So you end up with this kind of strange double standard where like on the one hand, uh, there's this demand to raise the global south up to the level of the global north. And also this recognition that you could never repeat what the global north did to get to that point. Um, and again, just sort of ignoring that it would be impossible to distribute all that evenly as well. So I guess you could say, like, I think liberals in the global north basically fail to recognize that, like, their own ability to enjoy their standard of living is precisely because so-called developing countries are poor and exploited historically. And the environment is also exploited historically, right? That, like, uh, liberalism sort of in these countries rests on this foundation of uh, ecological degradation and economic exploitation, which is... a uh, I don't know, a really tough ideology to crack. 
Yeah, that's right. There's also, I think, a flip side to this, too, where sometimes liberalism will. I mean, OK, so I think that, first of all, the, the diagnosis you're giving here, I think, makes complete sense. Though the other the other direction that sometimes liberalism can think about this, especially amongst progressives, is like, you know, what's the answer to climate change in the United States, in North America? And, you know, we we get things like the Green New Deal, which I mean, a, a great effort, I suppose, but does have, I mean, a lot of problems with it. Like, um, you know, it, it, can we can we all have um, rechargeable electric cars or, right. you know, can we all have solar panels or whatever? Other types of like advanced sort of green battery energy storing techniques. And it's like we th that's the answer, says something like the Green New Deal. You know, that's like the, the progressive answer. But on the other hand, to like get those things, you need to like plunder so-called developing countries for the resources they have, like lithium or, or copper or whatever. Um, I just heard I mean, I heard the most absurd thing on NPR a few days ago where they were talking about the um, OK, the, the United States, they just pulled out of uh, out of Afghanistan. And isn't that great? Um, and, and now all of these developers are asking like, OK, cool, the war is over, but like, when can we get back in to get the right. lithium out of Afghanistan? <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it's like uh, in the industrial industrial production in the United States needs to change to be more sustainable, but it will do so at the expense of like industrializing and like destroying other countries as well, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, so there is this one sense that like, um, you know, Bolivia or, or whatever, um, it's a country that has a lot of lithium, um, you know, they have to do their whole industrialization in a very eco-friendly green way. But at the mm -hmm. same time, like um, the global north, um, like requires them to to like supply them with all of the things that they need for, uh, you know, electric cars and stuff. So there's like this wild double standard um, between all of it. Right. And kind of building on that too, uh, the historical concentration of wealth in the global north, which is you know, a, a an effect of the uh, sort of sucking out of wealth from the global south. Um, that, too, sets up this weird imbalance where, like, global north countries are sort of free to, like, imagine how and when they would like to uh, greenify their economies or whatever. But, like, I was just reading, I don't know, maybe I talked about this on the lock-in podcast, I can't remember, but there was an article that came out about uh, the IMF the International Monetary Fund, um, which they they loan a bunch of money to uh, countries in the global south in really exploitative ways. Uh, in light of the pandemic, they were saying, you know, they, they want to launch all these um, new sort of financial initiatives, and a lot of them would be tied to incentives around greenifying uh, economies in the global south, which, like, sounds like a great idea, right? Like, in, and <laughs> in a basic sense, it is. Like, everybody should have a green economy. But the uh, IMF historically has uh, it, it gives out money with like very strong strings attached. Right. So it will be like, we'll give you this money to do this thing that we want you to do because we think it's very good for you. And in return, you have to like, you know, gut like all your public health care <laughs> or right. like uh, make sure that about you that's in the past when we talked about like structural adjustment programs. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Or it'll be like, you know, one way, for instance, that they would uh, encourage green um, development is by uh, giving like kickbacks to international green companies, right? Like solar panel companies mm -hmm. or something, which 
there's all kinds of stuff with that. Like they uh, they might clear, for instance, like indigenous land to install um, solar panels and so on. So there's this this real uh, continued um, colonialism, but like green this time. Right. Um, and I mentioned I've been reading La Dada Si. So surprise, surprise. I'm going to bring Papa Francesco into this one. Uh because surprisingly or not, he is attentive to this in his own way of thinking ecologically. So I just uh, coincidentally had come across this passage when we were thinking about this episode. Uh, Francis says, the foreign debt of poor countries has become a way of controlling them. Yet this is not the case where ecological debt is concerned. In different ways, developing countries where the most important reserves of the biosphere are found continue to fuel the development of richer countries at the cost of their own present and future. The land of the southern poor is rich and mostly unpolluted, yet access to ownership of goods and resources for meeting vital needs is inhibited by a system of commercial relations and ownership which is structurally perverse. The developed countries ought to help pay this debt by significantly limiting their consumption of non-renewable energy and by assisting poorer countries to support policies and programs of sustainable development. I think the last bit is uh, wishful thinking, perhaps mm-hmm. on Pope Francis's part, but nevertheless, I mean, he's absolutely right to point out, right, that like rich countries are sort of uh, able to enjoy the the plunder of poor countries and uh, poor countries don't get anything back in return. So all they do get is like the offer of potential loans from like the IMF that will inevitably... Uh, ensure that wealth continues to get sucked out of their countries and uh, they don't develop in the ways that they perhaps feel that they need or, or should develop. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's such an important thing to note the imperialism of all of it um, because like, uh, I mean, okay, it's, it's a current problem that is with us, but it also sets the tone for like how capitalism will inevitably deal with climate change. Um, and like you said, Dean, like capitalism can't, right? <laughs> like it, it can't, uh, it can't figure out how to, um, deal with a changing climate within itself because like, it's not within its logic to do so. It's like not, it's not a capacity that capitalism has, but like noting the imperialism of the situation, I think is a really great outline for the ways that capitalism trends when kind of like pushed in these directions, like tr- trending towards like fascism, I think is, is it securing its own resources for countries in the global north is probably the future right like that's um that's capitalism dealing with uh climate change uh it's just uh it's it's cracking down and like guarding the border i guess yeah exactly um and tying in that imperialism piece is important too because we were saying you know you can complicate anthropocene in a number of ways and maybe talking about about it in a capitalinian way is one way of doing that but again, it's like you can also find a way of talking about it that emphasizes the imperialist nature of all that, right? That right. Um, you uh, you don't get the sort of big anthropogenic climate change that we have just because like <laughs> the, you know, the factories of, of England are finally getting going in the 1900s or something. It's like you get it because uh, Europeans decided to colonize the world and then sort of reshape the entire planet in ways that are not ecologically sustainable because it is in the service of capital accumulating capital rather than human beings living healthy lives and so on. So uh, tying imperialism into that is, again, just like a necessary piece in the same way that pointing out 
the anti-blackness at the heart of all of this is necessary in the same way that pointing out our our metabolism with the earth in an ecological way is, is a necessary piece. All that kind of stuff sort of fits in. But yeah, the imperialism piece is important because you you often get a lot of green rhetoric um, that is totally inattentive to, uh, you know, how these sort of um, uh, lofty ideals actually end up uh, meeting real human beings, especially marginalized people uh, in other countries. Yeah, that's right. It's a really good, uh, a good note to make. You can't just understand it. I mean, you can't just like solve, solve climate change with like uh, maintaining the sort of same patterns of production and consumption it just doesn't work. Yeah, well, we can turn maybe to the uh, solution potentially in just a minute. But one other piece that I just thought I'd bring out here that kind of continues on the same lines, you know, I always, I always think about the development of ecologically disastrous economies in the US and Canada and Europe, um, you know, colonial powers as being it's so fascinating in a perverse way because they these countries are consuming at rates that are, you know, staggering and like I'm part of it, right? Like I consume in this country, too. Uh, and that consumption is so wild because like it is based on a historical process that cannot be repeated. Like we could never, you know, if, if everything that we know in our society today was like wiped out and people had to start from scratch tomorrow in however long it took them to discover like fossil fuels and stuff, they would not have enough oil <laughs> to like redo what we have done, uh, mm -hmm. already. And in addition to that, uh, other economies that are growing up now around colonial powers, uh, especially China, but you can think of other ones, too. Um, you know, there's all kinds of debates at like big na international summits and so on around like what should these countries do? What's their responsibility and, and that sort of thing? Um, what's really fascinating is like certainly every country in the world has a responsibility to develop in a way that is healthy and, and survivable or something like that. But uh, I, speaking of the monthly review, I was just rereading another article in there from uh, July, an article called China Imperialism or Semi-Periphery by, uh, uh, I don't know, I can't find the author right now. In any case, um, it's a good article. You should read it. Uh, it talks about trying to figure out if China is imperialist or not. And in, I don't know, you can make up your mind whether or not it's convincing. But uh, one piece in it that I thought was really interesting, supported by all kinds of graphs and so on, was this argument that uh, China could not become part of the kind of imperialist core in the way that the the usual core countries are because to do so would require extracting not only like massive amounts of labor from other countries in the world, just like those colonial powers do, but it would have like an ecological cost that would not be sustainable. Like the earth could not, uh, could not host China reaching the same sort of imperialist uh, levels as other countries on the planet. And I think that's really important too, to sort of keep emphasizing that capitalism is the problem because, uh, it's the countries who got to capitalism first that remain uniquely responsible, uh, you know, forever <laughs> for uh, climate change. Like other countries couldn't even get to that level of uh, sort of sin or, or destruction, even if they mm. tried. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, as always, say what you will about China, but 
um, I think that is a, a pretty helpful provision, um, or or at least a, a good way to think about it. Just kind of like the, um, well, I mean, not the accident of like fossil fuels and imperialism, like the planned the planned um, extraction of fossil fuels and imperialism from other countries. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a helpful way to kind of handle thinking about, um, I don't know, certain certain ideas of the future, especially uh, with like anti Chinese sentiment and stuff like that going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's pivot the conversation a little bit more. Um, so, so far, what we've got is climate change. It's still bad. <laughs> we've discovered um, it's bad. It's not good. We don't like it. Um, the phrase Anthropocene, though, carries a lot of complications. Um, like which anthros are postening this whole place up? That is <laughs> <laughs> not all of us, right? I mean, like, I, I don't... I want to be clear here too. I'm, we're not we're not making this claim about uh, the anthropocene and kind of complicating it to sort of get out of our own culpability in it because that, that's not that's not the case yeah. um, <laughs> for sure. But it is like um, I think it is bringing a certain type of correction to the way of thinking about anthropogenic climate change. That it's like you know it relies on the proletarianization of the masses. That y- there's not like a, an equal power distribution in in that. Like I, I mean even even in North America. I mean even though we are consuming here and we're driving cars and we're honking our horns and whatnot um you know the uh the power that we have to kind of push and pull on the uh the climate situation is like very different than were we dow chemical or something like that right right um we can all be planeteers in our own way and that's great we should um but uh there are a whole lot of like other people kind of weighing in on the situation that that uh prohibits our power and kind of maybe blocks some of that power without serious mm-hmm. organizing um but to think through some of the, I mean, to think through a perspective um, about like what what the future could be like, uh, where are we to think about it differently? Uh, the monthly review, uh, the same the same article here about the Capitolinian, is also uh, offering an alternative future to maybe help us think about uh, think about things, which is always nice. I appreciate that uh, when people <laughs> outline the bleak the bleakness of reality, but say it could be different. I that's great. It could be, and it's not right now, and that's a problem. But uh, the word that they go with here is one that I'm, again, not thrilled about the messaging, the, the marketing on, but the communion. So if there's the Capitolinian, the one where capitalism is sort of at the heart of these uh, uh, anthropogenic climate change, uh, there's the communion that that could be um, maybe the answer to it. So let me read a big block of text for the month review again, and then we'll talk about it. Um, okay. The advent of the communion or the geological age of the Anthropocene to succeed the Capitolinian, barring an end Anthropocene extinction, <laughs> extinction event. So the communion is what comes after the Capitolinian, unless we all die first. That's the big thing here. <laughs> Anyways, right. this uh, necessitates an ecological, social, and cultural revolution, one aimed at the creation of collective relations within humanity as a whole as a basis for a wider community with the Earth. It thus requires a society geared both substantive equality and ecological sustainability. The conditions for this new relation to the earth were eloquently expressed by Marx writing in the 19th century, of course, in what is perhaps (laughs) the most radical conception of sustainability ever developed. Marx writes this from the standpoint of higher socioeconomic formation, socialism, the private property of particular individuals in the earth will appear just as absurd as the private property of one man and other men of slavery even an entire society a nation or all simultaneously existing societies taken together are not the owners of the earth 
They are simply its possessors, its beneficiaries, and have to bequeath it in an improved state to succeeding generations as uh, good heads of the household. So, in the view of the ancient Greek materialist Epicurus, John Bellamy Foster ends this essay saying that the world is my friend. So, this is a, a different perspective. Like, um, if the Capitolinian is this whole logic that got us into, um, you know, the problem in the first place, and it's exacerbated the problem, and it has absolutely no possible way of solving the problem, the communion is what has to come after the fact. Um, or it's a, it's one possibility, right? <laughs> we could either all die or maybe we'll become communists. It's one of the two. Um, and uh, it, it has this different sort of perspective about the ways that humans should engage with the earth and thinking about it itself in, in relationship with the earth. Um, and uh, maybe, in, in, I don't know, the Epicurean thing at the very end about the world's my friend is maybe a good, a good summation of it, right? It's kind of understanding that the, the world uh, is uh, not to possess as private property, but to be uh, a beneficiary of and, uh, you know, to do something good with it. Right. Yeah, I think, too, it's interesting to pull that out because, you know, JBF, John Bellamy Foster, he uh, he mentions he, he calls that sort of posture of Marx uh, the most radical conception of sustainability ever developed. But he forgets that it was not developed by Marx, but actually comes to him, I think, uh, by way of the Christian tradition, right? Like, yeah. uh, you think of like the diggers, or I mean, we talked about this just recently when we, when we were talking about uh, St. Francis, um, that there's this conception that the earth is God's, and therefore nobody can really possess it, right? Uh, the As Gerard Wynn Stanley, one of the diggers, this radical English reformer said, when uh, rich people were trying to build fences to keep poor people out, um, you know, you, you can't do that, right? That, uh, they should destroy those fences. They should level them, dig them up, dig them out of the ground because it's an affront to God to sort of claim that you could possess that in a private way. And I think it's important for Christians to recover that sort of deep, uh, pulse of the Christian sort of radical message as well. I think, you know, talking about branding, like, it is hard to get Christians to think about communism for a lot of reasons, some of them bad and some of them totally understandable, I think, uh, given history. But like there is this kind of communism that is so ingrained in the Christian tradition that uh, is a, a a contributor to the kind of thing that John Bellamy Foster is rightly arguing for, right? A kind of uh, communion, a communitarian way of being together, which is really the only way out of something like capitalism. Like, it's only when you kind of break the addiction to private property that you could ever imagine a world where you wouldn't need more and more and more of it, <laughs> I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I mean, Christians, I think, should really take that as a, uh, a signal that, you know, we have our own ways of kind of getting into that uh, dialogue with Marxism. Yeah, I think it's a really good note. You know, okay, I don't want to go off on a whole another tangent because I think I have a lot of things to say about like the Anthropocene and sort of private property. Um, <laughs> but a lot of my work in grad school had a lot to do with uh, the idea of the Anthropocene and like um, the particular pathologies that humans have, I mean, enabled by capitalism that, you know, make our our modes of being in the world so oriented towards like possessing in in the sense of private property but yeah i mean i think this is exactly right like um christianity does have this i mean you know 
it's not necessarily always present in the um, Orthodox institutional church, but it is definitely like an undercurrent, if not like an overcurrent in some forms of Christianity that, that says, you know, that says uh, that property ultimately belongs to God. And and again, like we are the beneficiaries of it or something, you know, the uh, not to hold dominion over, but to, uh, you know, possess gently or something. And uh, yeah, man, I think that's such an important thing. Like if you want to really start thinking about ecology differently, you have to like sort of displace yourself as the sort of sole proprietor of the earth. And I think that's a a really important thing. Um, You know, uh, humans are part of creation for sure um, and not above it. And I think that is. uh, Well, it's a big deal. (laughs) It's a big deal for sure. Uh, I mean, I think that like you can see the ways that uh, a lot of these ideas have been co- have become like very malformed within uh, very reactionary types of Christianity, um, especially like I mean, like in Genesis, okay, th- there's this whole there's this whole current within Christianity about this thing called creation care, which is, I think, a very liberal way of thinking about ecology in the Bible, for sure. But it is a reaction, though, to like Christian dominionism over like uh, over earth, right? The sort of like um, that God gives the earth to people and and, like we can just kind of like exploit it however you want. And that's, you know, I think a a wrong way of thinking, but um, bound up in all of these kinds of questions of creation and like how you as a human kind of fit into it. I think the question of private property ends up becoming really central if you think about it kind of hard because Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, like what does it mean to really like to like own like to own the earth to have dominion over it is it like is it possessing it in a way that you can exploit it for your own good to the detriment of the entirety of you know the the community like no that sucks that's not, obviously not good um so like embracing that early christian impulse um that's kind of like against private property is is maybe a first step for christians to think through uh some of these environmental problems and like where they'll get you in the end Yeah, yeah. And, you know, not only uh, the early Christian impulse, um, but uh, all the way into Laudato Si itself, right, where Pope Francis like opens that saying that uh, the church has never said that private property is an inalienable right, but um, that that common destination of goods is sort of the controlling idea. Um, Well, just to kind of keep on the Christian bit, maybe as we (laughs) try to wrap this up, you know, I was talking earlier about the imperialist piece of all this, that uh, people in the global north, me, uh, Matt, people who are probably listening to this podcast for the most part, uh, we um, consume and live our lives in such a way that is enabled by exploitative and extractive practices related to the global south, right? That's probably news to nobody, I'd guess. Um, But the question is, like, what do you have to do about that? And I think this is actually a situation where... um, Christianity and Marxism, you know, again, surprise, I guess, hold hands. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the podcast is called The Magnificast, and it comes from Mary's song uh, called The Magnificat in Luke. And one of the uh, lines in Mary's song is that the rich are being made low and the poor are being raised up. That's part of the kind of messianic dream of Jesus coming into the world. And I think about that a lot with things like imperialism that, you uh, in this sort of Christian way of thinking in Mary's song of liberation, the the rich in our countries have to be made low and the poor in the global South have to be raised up, not in such a way that I think 
everybody gets cell phones or something, but in such a way that there's a radical reorganization of the global economy. And I think that is obviously a really ambitious kind of dream, a utopic uh, thing to think about. But at the same time, it's important for us to have those kinds of conversations at that level, too, because it's an intervention, I think, in certain conversations in the left, right? Like, uh, I always think about the conversation around luxury space communism or whatever it is that, uh, you know, the dream is that everybody will have an infinity pool on their rooftop or something. And that always really bothers me because uh, in situations where people have really done socialism or really made a a real effort, I guess, is what I mean, really, really tried to do socialism. uh, It has not meant infinity pools. It is like hardly even meant public pools (laughs) in some (laughs) cases, right? That like countries are too poor to invest in these kinds of things. And it's important to think like Fraibeto does about Cuba, that socialism is a, a spiritual discipline, right? That it demands a certain kind of collective asceticism. And I think people in the global north are really going to have a bad wake-up call one way or the other. They're going to have a bad wake-up call through the basic result of climate change that will say you can't have cell phones anyway, you can't have cars anyway because the planet is on fire, <laughs> Uh, or we're going to have a wake-up call that we we hear early enough to start making conscious decisions toward, um, you know, not consuming in the way that we do and giving up the dream of having an infinity pool and everybody having a lawnmower and so on and so forth and having to think seriously about collectivizing the things that we enjoy privately. So all that to say, I think there's a lot of good resources in kind of Christian ways of thinking about being in the world and and renunciation, if you can do it in a healthy way, that sort of put us on a path to thinking in terms of socialism as well. Yeah, that's a really good note. I mean, you're right, though. It is like uh, it's coming kind of one way or the other. And it is definitely about how you're going to create your disposition toward it, for sure. Like, um, I mean, climate change is here. Like how we're going to deal with it is is a is a conversation for right now <laughs> you know it's like uh luxury luxury gay space communism whatever it's not you're not gonna have an infinity pool on your roof like you're gonna have like an agroecology project on your roof or something <laughs> like that's it i i mean there's just like there's no way out of the situation without drastically altering the patterns of production and consumption and um man, I would rather be making those decisions like in a participatory and democratic way than like letting a bunch of like fascists in, in the government do it for me. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. That's the those are the choices. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's like we said this the last time we did the climate change episode, but uh, I think it's important to recognize here, too, that people like Joe Biden the Democrats and so on, or in my country, Trudeau and even the NDP, I mean, they are climate change denialist parties insofar as they're not working to collectivize our societies, right? They're not being proactive. Um, They're holding on to a way of thinking that will not, uh, it, it is literally not sustainable. It cannot be sustained. And I don't know. It's like, what do you do about all that? I I do think part of it is like, go to church and let your imagination be formed for sure in such a way that puts you on a path to thinking in common and and renouncing things. And the other part of it is like, go to your union meeting or like be out in the streets, you know? Uh, And uh, that's, I mean, that's the answer to the end of every podcast that we ever do. But yeah, um, exactly. I mean, there's just like so much organizing work to be done. 
Um, yeah. And it is, I think, kind of overwhelming, but like people are doing it. I don't know whether it's yeah. like, um, you know, your union meeting, your your whatever socialist formation meeting, <laughs> your church, <laughs> your like local, I don't know, like farmers group or whatever, man, like it's all extremely important and uh, you, you can't neglect any of these things kind of moving forward. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Go to your union, go to church, plant a garden, um, wear your clothes two times in a row, um, <laughs> and uh, take less showers. I don't know. Uh, take less showers, but also uh, tell Joe Biden to, you know, be a communist. <laughs> I don't know. What am I saying at the end here? I'm trying to think of a good sign off, but it's just not coming. Um, <laughs> take less showers is not a great one, but it's fine. I get it. <laughs> Uh, buy right. uh, buy bulk seeds and store it in a mason jar in your garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and don't let Monsanto know about them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you support us at two dollars or more, you can get access to the lock-in, which is a behind the paywall podcast we do that we mentioned a couple times in this episode. It's a sillier vibe. There's goofy jokes. There's current events and so on. So you can get that there. Um, there's stickers and I don't know other stuff there. There's a discord community that you can join. If you want to talk about these monthly review articles and we know that you do. We're doing it. Uh, we're doing it. There's a whole channel to do it. There's voice chat for people doing it. It's uh, it's great. We're, we're working it out. One JBF article at a time. <laughs> um Our music is by Amaria Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would else I 